Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week we are talking about the 3%. That is, the estimated 3% of books published in the United States that are works in translation. And that includes all books in translation, from Knausgaard to Norwegian Penny Dreadfuls. So the amount of literary fiction and poetry published is actually closer to 0.7%. That's right. Not even 1%. Would that this American condition were so dire because foreign language instruction in the United States were flourishing, and everyone was reading Russian epics, Japanese poetry, Norwegian crime novels, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez in the original. But as you might expect, this is hardly the case. That lone guy reading Proust in French and a beret really is alone. So this episode of Smarty Pants is one little ship fighting against the tide of mainstream publishing. You could even say we're fighting ignorance, one word at a time, by spotlighting worlds beyond our own, but which, for all that, still reflect what it is to be human. This week, we're talking about two works published this fall in translation. And not only are they in translation, they are the first of their kind translated into English. The first novel from Madagascar and the first anthology of Tibetan short fiction which, for sad and complicated reasons, we'll learn, is not always written directly from Tibet. Thousands and thousands of books were burnt. Tibetan language really, uh, I mean, now you could say it's a second-class language, but at that time it was really entirely suppressed. And for those of us on the outside, um, in the early years, you know, survival was, was the first thing they had to worry about. Literary and cultural production took quite a few decades, you could say, before uh, people had the time and energy to really think about that. That was Tenzin Dickey, the editor and translator of Old Demons, New Deities, which collects the works of 16 Tibetan writers working today. We'll return to Tibet in the second part of the show. First, we're going to a giant island off the coast of Mozambique and talking to the people behind the first ever Malagasy novel translated into English. Naivo, whose debut novel is really a kind of double debut, and Alison Charette, who translated it. 
Beyond the rice fields is the epic story of Tito, a young slave, and Farah, his master's daughter, set amid the lush landscapes of the early 19th century. It's a love story, but it's also the origin story of modern Madagascar itself, as British Christian missionaries, French industrialists, and the island's ruling elite wrestled for control of their people, their natural resources, and their destiny. Naivo and Allison joined us from New York City. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So, Naivo, the story of Beyond the Rice Fields is this epic tale of friendship between a slave, Tito, and his master's daughter, Farah, in one of the most turbulent times in Malagasy history in the 19th century. So mm-hmm. where did these characters come from, and, and what was the inspiration for this novel? Um, I would say the, the inspiration of the novel uh, comes from two sources. One day I discovered this uh, poison ordeal of the Tangena, you know, that was used in the judicial system. Uh, so that, that was the first, um, I, would, I would say, the first shock because I discovered this thing that I had not learned uh, in school and uh, that nobody was really uh, uh, talking about. And the second thing uh, was poetry. Uh, this uh, traditional form of poetry that we call Heintain in Madagascar, uh, that I rediscovered uh, many years after the, the poison ordeal. And um, I uh, realized that this so-called poetry was not uh, only a poetry. It was, in a sense, uh, a way people used the language uh, in their everyday life, but it was pushed to the margins of uh, culture and of society by the action of the uh, Christian missionaries. The two characters, uh, they come from um, several uh, tales in the traditional uh, uh, Malagasy culture uh, that I used, uh, and I, I, I chose those that, really, that I really liked. For, for example, uh, this tale of um, the Prince of Light and uh, the Princess and many other characters. Without giving too much away, can you tell us a little bit more about the poison ordeal for those of us who uh, are not well-versed in it? Okay. Yeah, the poison that they use is called the Tangena. It was used against people who were suspected of witchcraft and of rebellion against the authority. So the procedure was to uh, give them uh, three pieces of um, chicken skin that they would swallow and with lots of uh, rice, and then to give them the poison. And if if they were able to regurgitate the three pieces, they were um, considered innocent. If they did not, they were considered guilty. And what period was that in? It sounds a little bit like if a witch floats. (laughs) So this ordeal was used as the system of last resort uh, in the traditional uh, world. But when Queen Ranavalna came, she used it uh, on a large scale to crush uh, her enemies. In the first part of the 19th century, uh, the historical context is that after the, the end of the slave trade in 1807, the British were looking to expand their uh, influence in the region. And they, they saw this big island, which at the time was still divided into many uh, small kingdoms. And so they 
set out a plan to uh, help one of the local rulers to conquer the whole island and to unify the island so that it would be easier for them to expand the British influence. So this uh, king, Radama I, he not only uh, conquered the, the island, but he opened the gates of the kingdom to the Europeans. So that's when the Christian missionaries came uh, in the highlands. At the same time, uh, uh, European traders came too on the east coast and on the west coast, and uh, trade was um, uh, thriving. And, uh, but unfortunately, the, uh, King Radama I died suddenly at the age of 35. And his wife became queen under the name of Ranavalna. And at first, she continued the policy of her late husband, allowing the missionaries to work and uh, promoting the commerce. But after a few years, she realized that um, especially the work of the missionaries was threatening her, uh, her authority, and she backtracked. In the end, it uh, started a war against uh, European influence, and that's how the uh, Tangena ordeal uh, was used extensively. Wow. I mean, it sounds like the novel is basically, in a lot of ways, the story of the, the birth of modern Madagascar. Was it a struggle to, to balance the weight of history with these individual stories of Tito and Farah? Yes, it was a little bit of a struggle because, as I said, I, I wanted to write a love story, but at the same time, I uh, was thinking that I had to give as much context as possible because the, the poem called Einstein didn't make sense uh, when you separate it from the context. So that was the balance that I had to search for. So, Alison, um, as the translator, how did you discover this novel? I essentially discovered the entire island of Madagascar at the same time from a, from a literary standpoint. Um, I was doing my master's in literary translation up at the University of Rochester a few years back. And I one day uh, discovered randomly through a blog that no novels from Madagascar had ever been translated into English, which is a tragedy in many ways, but especially because a lot of the authors do write in French, which is a very common language. And so I essentially decided that I was just going to try to fix that. So I went to Madagascar and met a bunch of authors. And uh, Naivo does not live in Madagascar. He's, he's up in Canada. But he was, this book, Beyond the Rice Fields, was one that kept coming up in conversations that I was having with a bunch of authors who live in Madagascar. And so I went and found a copy at one of the local bookstores and read it and, and fell in love, essentially. Um, I brought home an entire suitcase of books from Madagascar, but this was one of the ones that I very much wanted to work on first. I mean, that's kind of bold to, you know, single-handedly fix the problem of no Malagasy novels in English. Was it intimidating? Was it liberating? Like, how much, uh, I guess, contextual reading did you do to make it make sense as a translation? 
Well, I had to actually go to Madagascar in order for it to make sense. It, it was uh, when I when I first discovered this, I was still doing my master's, and it was it was a little late to change the thesis. But I, I started working on some short stories, thinking, "Oh, I speak French. I should be able to do this. This is no problem." And realizing that I didn't have any context whatsoever. And even though the French that is spoken in Madagascar is a pretty standard French, it's not it's not really a Creole or a Pigeon or anything like that. I, I still had zero cultural context. And, and so I did kind of randomly just decide to go to Madagascar and try to meet people. Um, so I, I took a six-week trip in 2014. And that was enough to get me started on a bunch of the culture. And now I have Naivu and all of these other author friends who can answer all of my hundreds and hundreds of <laughs> questions on everything that I try to translate. Yeah. I mean, did you have to make any kinds of um, like adaptations or additions to the translation to explain various like cultural phenomena that would be known to Malagasy or French readers that wouldn't be known to English? Like, what was that process like? Well, the brilliance of Beyond the Rice Field specifically is that it's it's written to kind of do that already. It's written to introduce Malagasy history and a, a lot of Malagasy culture to people who are not necessarily familiar with it, i.e. a French-speaking audience who may or may not be Malagasy themselves. So a lot of that work was actually done for me in this book, which was wonderful. Um, as a translator in fiction, I despise footnotes um, because I, I think that you're telling a story and you should just tell the story. And, and there's always things in fiction in your own language that you may not understand. Um, I, I, was, I was reading Karen Russell's Swamplandia a few months ago and, and was astonished at how much of the alligator park swamp culture I had no idea about. But I just kind of took it in stride. And I think reading international fiction is much the same. You don't need a dictionary explanation of every single thing that's going on and every single word that's being used. And so what we did in Beyond the Rice Fields, because there is so much Malagasy language used, is we put a glossary at the back. But a lot of the explanations are just kind of slipped in there as stealth glosses. You can you can kind of pick it up from context. You know, you may not know what a specific word is, but if they're sitting around eating dinner, you can tell that it's a food, and that's about all you need to know. Yeah, I would say um, I, I'm really very happy with the the translation because I can even even though my my command of English is not uh, not so good, I can I can sense the Malagasy. In, in the English that uh, Alison is using in the book. So I'm very happy about that because uh, that's what I did myself. Uh, the novel in, in itself is already a translation from the Malagasy. Uh, and that's what I tried to do, to put as much uh, Malagasy soul inside this French language that I used to uh, describe this uh, world and uh, that I used to tell this love story. Well, and it, it wasn't, this wasn't something that you originally wrote in Malagasy. It's more of a, a creation of a Malagasy experience in French, right? Yes, that's right. I, I didn't write it in Malagasy. But uh, when, I was, when I was writing it in French, 
I uh, forced myself uh, as much as possible to think in Malagasy. And even the, the, uh, the sentence that, that, that I used, I always tried to uh, give a Malagasy flavor in it. Uh, I would say it's, it was a translation in my head, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, that gets at some of the like the wonderful tension in the novel. I mean, wonderful, I guess, is the wrong word to use. But it's it's really cool to me, at least, that that translation between like Malagasy's soul and French or English expression is kind of a subject of the novel, too. Can you talk a little bit about the the tension there between, I guess, Malagasy tribal and ancestral customs and then the Europeans who came in? Do you see lingering effects of that still? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, this whole um, uh, thing that happened in the 19th century, it set the, the, like the frame of what would happen in later periods. And this tension that uh, existed between the Malagasy traditional society and the, the coming uh, European influence, I think, uh, led to lots of contradictions, uh, even in uh, the Malagasy society today. For instance, uh, when the missionaries arrived, they were uh, promoting new ideas. And in the end, uh, in 1895, or with the spread of these ideas, uh, when the French conquered the country, the, 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 the slavery was abolished. But at the same time, uh, some structures uh, stayed and some uh, antagonisms still exist in the nowadays the Malagasy society that... Uh, can be traced back to these periods. I mean, I would call it an an unresolved problem. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but, you know, think of parallels to the U.S. Um, in that, you know, we also institutionalize slavery and are still dealing with ramifications from that. Um, Allison, did you, did you see any of those parallels as you were translating? I mean, it is a novel of the 19th century, but it, it has ramifications for today, and we can see that in the United States as well. Right. And, and that's that's what's so interesting about doing a work of historical fiction is is that it still can speak to your own culture and your own time. Um, I was very interested in working on this novel to bring to a U.S. audience specifically, well, for many reasons, but one of them was because of the question of slavery and how how different the institution was in Madagascar compared to what we did in the States, because in the States and in much of European world and the Western world, it was a, a very racially charged thing, obviously. Um, but it was one of those very depressing moments to realize that it doesn't just have to be about race, that uh, humans all across the world have the capacity to enslave their fellow humans. And just because it is made official at some sort of governmental level. The abolition of that has never actually fixed the way that people think. And, you know, in the, in the United States, we're still feeling extremely heavy ramifications of having slavery today. There, there has never been a time in our history when blacks have been treated as equals between getting the vote later, between being denied equal opportunity for housing and, and loans and continuing today with all of the problems that we're having with police brutality and everything else. You know, it's 
it's important to acknowledge those problems and figure out what we can do to fix it. Yeah, I would like to add uh, in terms of, uh, you know, to broaden the, the perspective, I think that the case of Madagascar, um, to get back to this collision between Western culture and the uh, Malagasy traditional culture, I, I think Malagasy is unique, uh, sadly unique, in the sense uh, because of this genocide. Uh, because if you if you compare in other to to other regions, for example, um, at the same time, like uh, the Zulus in South Africa, or the Ashantis on the on the west coast of Africa, they they reacted to Western influence without uh, really being uh, destroyed from the inside. They waged war against, uh, for example, in the case of the Ashanti, they waged war against the British. But in Madagascar, it happened differently at the same period because the Malagasy accepted the European influence and, in a sense, they swallowed it too quickly, so quickly that it became a poison. So that's the, the metaphor of the poison that I'm using in my novel. And it, it, it ended badly because it, it, it happened too quickly and it, it, uh, it ended in a, in a genocide. Yeah, yeah, it's really tragic. Well, I guess to lighten the mood a little bit, would you mind reading an excerpt from the first part of the book? Yes, yes. This is an excerpt from the very first chapter when Tito is first setting up his, uh, the story that he's going to be telling for the entire book. Despite the passage of years, I remember my arrival in Sasu in great detail. I still remember that sun-drenched morning during the Alakarub moon when Radu brought me to the village. As we walked through it, children flocked to us, raising a cloud of dust. Even the dogs came up to sniff me. I felt very fragile, lost, filled with fear. How do any bay, said Radu, walking into the hut. Is anyone here? Farah and Bauer were at the market. Bebe was alone, burning incense in the northeast corner. I'd followed Radu but stopped at the door, dazed. Everything was new to me. I was assaulted by smells, sounds, and lights from every corner of the house. The placement of objects was unpredictable, threatening. The bed looked fit for a funeral. The sinibe was a weird color. The sahafu looked like the wrong size. Manchutumk. Tongasu, what have you brought us? Even the central Midlands drawl, which I've now adopted, made me instinctively afraid. It reminded me of the slave market, of the soldiers. The welcoming words opened my wounds again. That's just a little flavor with, uh, with a lot of Malagasy thrown in that I attempt to pronounce correctly. No, oh, it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> You can grab a copy of Beyond the Rice Fields by Naivo, translated by Alison Charette, wherever good books are sold. You might recognize the name of the publisher, Restless Books, since I interviewed its two founders, Joshua Ellison and Ilan Stavins, on an earlier episode of the show. If you want to learn more about what it's like to be a small publishing house whose mission is to publish works in translation, well, the link is in the show notes. You'll learn who Björk thinks is the voice of modern Iceland, which is quite an endorsement. Here are some more fun facts about literature in translation. 
some heartening ones, actually. So not every country shares our American affliction. 27% of books published in France are in translation. Spain edges ahead with 28%, Turkey with 40 and Slovenia with 70%. You might counter and say, well, wait a minute. Non-English-speaking countries translate more books because way more books are published in English to begin with. True. And they're not just American or British. There's people writing in English from Pakistan, India, Nigeria, South Africa, New Zealand. True. True. All of this is true. And sometimes people write in English because their own indigenous languages have been suppressed. That's certainly one of the reasons why our next guest, Tenzin Dickey, was working with such a range of short stories for her collection, Old Demons, New Deities, the first anthology of Tibetan short fiction in English. She collected stories not only written in English, but also those translated from Tibetan and Chinese. The Tibetan diaspora extends from Tibet to every corner of the globe. And Dickey's anthology collects stories from writers living in China, India, Nepal, the United States, and Canada. And these writers use a whole host of genres, memoirs, essays, novels, poems. But they all write short stories, a lot of short stories. For Tibetans, the short story has become one of the most popular forms of artistic expression ever since the first Tibetan language journal was published in 1980s Lhasa. Dickie joined us from New York to talk about life in exile, the rain in Dharamsala, and the best momos in Queens. Little Tibet in Jackson Heights, in case you're wondering. Thanks for joining us, Dickie. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So as you write in the introduction to the collection, Tibetan literature has a very long history. After all, the writing system was invented in the 7th century, But you talk about how the literary tradition of novels and fiction was really slow coming and only blossomed at the turn of the 20th century. So where was Tibetan fiction for that thousand year period? I guess I would start by saying, so really the primary Tibetan literary form has always been poetry. Uh, Like many other cultures, Tibet was an extremely oral culture. So there was epic poetry, there was folk poetry, there were songs. um, But as far as written Tibetan literature was concerned, that was primarily Buddhist literature, you know, works on ethics, um, philosophy, epistemology, Buddhist cosmogony, things that Buddha said, things that his disciples wrote down. So there's a tremendous amount of um, literature. And all of that literature is really premised on, well, the idea of nirvana, on the idea of enlightenment, on the idea of escaping from this mundane existence, really detaching oneself from desire. Of course, you know, the idea of fiction, fiction is really rooted in desire. Um, How does a story happen? A story starts with with somebody wanting something, uh, with really a, a celebration of desire, perhaps you could say. So perhaps because of that, the evolution of Tibetan fiction uh, was really delayed and uneven. I mean, that's a more philosophical reason. It's a more literary reason. But I would also say one perhaps more material reason is that, uh, you know, in Tibetan, literary production was based in these huge monastic universities that had these printing presses and um, 
all of what was printed and produced were Buddhist literature. You know, the idea of um, secular literature taking up the same resources, that didn't really happen. And uh, part of all of this is because uh, Tibetan printing was traditional woodblock printing, which required enormous resources that, you know, individuals and uh, private people didn't really have. So fiction um, sort of suffered, you could say. So where do you place the start of Tibetan fiction? Really, the first sort of novel that we think of as the Tibetan novel uh, is uh, written by this guy, Dokar Tsering Wangyal, in the 1720s. But it's really more of a, a pastiche of a novel rather than what we would think of as a modern novel. And then... Uh, what we think of as a modern novel, you know, that only came much later in uh, in the 1960s, uh, a socialist realist novel that this guy Jampel Gyatso wrote uh, called Gyatsong Metok, An Auspicious Flower. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing about that novel is actually it was first written in Chinese and the Tibetan uh, version of that book only came out in the 1980s. And then in exile, uh, perhaps the first uh, Tibetan novel written there, uh, written in the Tibetan language, uh, would be Cold West, Warm East, a book that really deals with an exiled Tibetan's displacement and and globalization and you know space in the twenty first century Tibetan world. Yeah, there was a seismic change in the twentieth century the invasion and occupation of Tibet and the subsequent exile and displacement of Tibetan citizens. How did the Tibetan world, as you see it, change? Well, I mean, you know, with the Chinese invasion of Tibet begun in 1949 and uh, completed in 1959, the entire structure of Tibetan society was really upended. Tibetan government uh, had to be dissolved. The Dalai Lama's government had run Tibet for the past 300 years. The 14th Dalai Lama, who was still a young man at that time, his entire government had to escape. And they were followed by tens of thousands of Tibetans, including, you know, my my young parents and my grandparents. Um, so there was really this sort of enormous rupture in Tibetan life. There was a huge break with the Tibetan literary past, with the Tibetan cultural past. And this break happened, you know, both for those of us outside growing up in exile and for those Tibetans living in Tibet now under Chinese occupation. When the Cultural Revolution happened inside Tibet, uh, all of these monastic printing presses that we talked about, they were all shut down. They were destroyed. Thousands and thousands of books were burnt. Uh, Tibetan language really, uh, I mean, now you could say it's a second-class language, but at that time it was really entirely suppressed. And for those of us on the outside, um, I grew up in a Tibetan refugee school in um, in northern India. And, you know, in, in the early years, when my parents were growing up in those schools, you know, survival was, was the first thing they had to worry about. Literary and cultural production took quite a few decades, you could say, before uh, people had the time and energy to really think about that. It's so sad to think about Things just getting started in Tibet with modern languages and newspapers, and then suddenly all of this happens and it's like crushed and everything is burned almost to the ground. 
Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to, I guess, study a culture or write in a culture that's so fractured? And because I mean, because the Tibetan community now is split between occupied Tibet, the exile community in India, and then this vast diaspora across the world. So what's it like to to grow up in a community like that and then also to to write or try to assemble a history of a community living in such a fractured way? You know, it took me a long time to realize that we're really second-generation exiles, uh, me and, you know, my classmates and my sort of my cohort, my generation of people. Uh, we are not first-generation exiles. That would be my parents' generation. And um, one reason this is important is that we're really... I mean, it, that makes us sort of twice removed from Tibet, right? Uh, growing up, um, our parents didn't really have stories of growing up inside Tibet. They were quite young at that time. Their stories all had to do with the crossing over, with, with coming into exile, and then with the early exile days, you know, how poor the schools were, how horrible the food was, how a lot of the kids were orphaned or semi-orphaned. I mean, even in my time, in my school. So what all of this meant was, uh, was that we grew up with this idea of Tibet, which is actually very abstract, I guess sort of a process of coming to terms with myself and my history and my heritage has been realizing that abstraction and sort of trying to make it more particular. I mean, what is Tibet? Uh, what is Tibetan literature? That's one reason that uh, I read Tibetan writers and Tibetan poets and try to translate their works. It's, it's a way of bringing Tibet closer to me. Having said that, I would say that right now, as we now enter, you know, over 60 years of exile and displacement and occupation, in some ways, uh, Tibet is now closer to us than ever. And a lot of this has to do with the Internet. All Tibetans that I know now are on WeChat to communicate um, with their relatives in Tibet, with, with Tibetans all over the world. I mean, a lot of Tibetan intellectuals that I know are on Facebook. And um, I'm Facebook friends with them, so I can, I can read and see what they're up to and sort of follow them. Um, so that divide uh, between occupied Tibet and exiled Tibet is... I mean, let me be clear, that divide is still there. The Chinese government makes it hard for Tibetans to have very open lines of communication, that sort of thing. But there, there are many, many spaces that the government is now less and less able to monitor and close off. Yeah, I was going to ask whether social media had changed things, and it sounds like it really has. Um, so what was your first encounter with Tibetan fiction? When did you first see yourself reflected in in literature in that way? I mean, from when I was growing up, you know, uh, our teachers were constantly quoting lines of Sanya Getso's poetry to us. But in terms of poetry that I myself started reading and really being affected by, the first time that I read Tenzin Sundu's poem titled When It Rains in Dharamsala, and you know it goes, when it rains in Dharamsala, raindrops wear boxing gloves. When I read it, it just sort of uh, blew my mind. It was the first time that I had the thought to myself, wow, you can write about that too. 
I really grew up reading a lot of uh, British poetry, a lot of British literature. You know, when you're reading a lot of literature from other cultures, which doesn't really overlap with your own experience, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that happens. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the early short stories that I wrote, and this was actually for a class with Jamaica Kincaid. My short story was about this uh, Tibetan girl and her grandmother in Dharamsala. So there were three characters in this story. It was the girl, the grandmother, and then there was a an American tourist. And the story sort of filtered through his experience. And Jamaica Kinke read the story, and then she said to me, why do you need this guy? You know, it's the girl's story. Why do you need him? And... I just sort of assumed that, of course, you need this American tourist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, because um, heroes, the protagonists in stories, in poetry, in a lot of the stuff that I had sort of grown up reading, um, the heroes were really Western men. So I had never really seen stories about people like me. I was going to ask, what do you think is so appealing about the short story in particular? Why is that, after poetry, the vehicle that that drives so many of these these experiences that people write about? So Tibetan literature at this point in time is um, a stateless literature. I mean, we have the Tibetan government in exile. In Tibet, in China, uh, the government there is... Um, is is uh, the communist government uh, whose language of power is Chinese. Um, All of this means that Tibetan literature doesn't have, say, like the backing of a state, which many other national literatures and cultures do. Uh, You know, they have states that promote these cultures, that promote and um, advance huge sums of money uh, to, to produce more literature. So one thing that means for us is that the entire Tibetan literary system of production is kind of disadvantaged, you know? I'll give you an example this independent Tibetan poetry publisher, Black Neck Books, based in India. So it's run by two writers. It doesn't really have any resources. It doesn't have a lot of money to put towards its books, to to pay advances to its writers, like none of that. And in Tibet, you know, literary production there is sort of split between government printing houses and then the sort of underground semestat literature, which obviously has to hide and maneuver and, you know, does not have the same resources. So all of this, what that tends to mean for us is Tibetan writers have day jobs. We have to do other things to make a living. And writing is something that you must do on the side. And, you know, that's really one practical reason that people tend to write, say, short stories more than long epic novels. The space for that is um, easier to find. Right. And I think it also lends itself, too, to, to stories of the everyday, as you were saying, like imagining really what life is like for, for everyday people. 
Yeah, you know, one thing about a novel versus a short story is, as far as Tibetan writers inside Tibet are concerned, I mean, they have to be careful what they say and what they write. All the official printing houses, so that is to say all the non-underground printeries, are censored. And this is not just books. Um, You know, if a Tibetan filmmaker wants to make a movie, uh, the script has to go through this sort of censorship process. So writers are not free to write whatever they want. So there tends to be a certain amount of magical realism in their fiction. To me, that seems to be one way for them to say things that might be otherwise censored. And this means that, you know, writing becomes a site of resistance in some ways. And uh, that, I think, actually is, um, it, it, that translates both inside Tibet and out in the diaspora. One thing that I think is really important with Tibetan writers, you know, writing their short stories, whether in Tibetan or English or Chinese, is um, Tibet and sort of Tibetans have been caught between two stereotypes of, you know, this passive victim of Chinese occupation and colonization. And then the other extreme is, you know, this passive Buddhist paragon of virtues. And uh, one thing that I think Tibetan fiction produced by Tibetan writers show quite clearly is that... um, You know, they get at the complexity of Tibetan lives. Uh, They show that we exist between those stereotypes. Tibetans are just as awesome and just as shitty as your average American, your average Indian, your average Bhutanese. So that, I think, is one very important thing that these stories do. They show us dwelling in in the complexity of being fully human. Tenzin Dickey's anthology, Old Demons, New Deities, is a wonderfully eclectic collection spanning the Himalayas and the Catskill Mountains and the Indian Railway and the heights of New York City. Definitely check it out. Thanks for sailing the good ship Smarty Pants this week as we fight the tides of modern publishing. So start the season right by reading a book from somewhere you've never been to. And then we'll see you here again in two weeks. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.